0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, here with another fantastic episode. This episode really was a milestone for this podcast because today's guest is a huge inspiration for this podcast getting started, me getting into podcasting, me finding my place with these topics and subjects. So we've got a lot in store in today's episode. The great Greg Carlwood from the Higher Side Chats joined me today as you may have seen in the episode title. And speaking of what is seen and unseen, we have a new episode, the first episode out of the Seen the Synchro Mystic Experiment in the Ever-Expanding Now. It's out on the Patreon. You can see the preview. It's the episode before this one. And there's about a half an hour more of that conversation. And moving forward, we're going to cut it 45-45 for a whole 90 minutes. And maybe longer. We might do an hour-hour split. But for now, 45-45... Check it out. You got to go to the Patreon.com slash MFTIC to get that whole episode. This episode, you get the whole thing for free, but the next episode coming out this week, the second episode of the Synchro Mystic Experiment in the Ever Expanding Now will also be half and half, half on the Patreon and half on the free show. So folks, show us some love for just $3 or more if you're generous Show us some love and get the whole episode. Join the exploration with us because there's so much to uncover. The mystery is ever expanding. I hope you guys participate. See you soon on the Patreon. Enjoy this conversation with Greg Carwood, host of The Higher Side Chats.
1: node is in the 10th house and it says the north node in the 10th house indicates a karmic duty to become a role model for groups of people such a person must experience public leadership and also responsibility for others he must be a pioneer that will inspire so that others will follow a stereotype for others to copy a person who through wisdom experience and fairness will become the head of his own pyramid We're saying lab leak really early on. Some were saying this is an exosome; it isn't even a virus. Some are saying viruses aren't even real. And I like to hear different degrees of out there when it comes to certain things. And I tend to settle somewhere in the middle. But I don't have a net a conclusion really. I have a range of possibilities and a percentage, you know, on each one. That's how I to think about things because we really don't know. We know the mainstream narrative is gonna be false. We can rely on that pretty consistently. But I just like to, to have guests give their perspective focused on supply chain and getting better food and water into our bodies so that we have better immune systems and can actually resist a lot of this agenda because the other thing about conspiracy is when I started I felt like there were a lot of people interested in conspiracy but the archetype is that they can't get their lives together economically can't get their lives together in so many ways and they're on the edge of a mental collapse And I thought, it doesn't have to be that way. I want to show that being a conspiracy enthusiast, I like to say that instead, than theorist, is, is actually serving your life in a positive way, in a better way. I want to be an archetype that says, I'm better off for knowing about conspiracy, not worse off.
0: Gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer, and with me today is my co-host, Tara. Tara, thanks for joining me. How are you?
2: Great to be here.
0: Right on. Yeah, and I am so excited because with us today is somebody who really profoundly sparked my journey, sparked the impetus to get into all this. I remember it was, I think, your interview with Tolek, where I just was like, that's it, I'm sold, I'm getting a plus membership. And for those listening who are also plus members, you should know that the great Greg Carlwood is joining us today, the master of intros, really can't live up to it. But Greg, how are you?
1: Hey, can't complain. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Right on. Yeah, and I got to say again, your show has done so much to inform myself and many others in these fringe areas that were just kind of loosely connected online. Now I feel like your show and and many others like your show offer people a sort of backbone to begin getting into all this stuff and it becomes less of of a, a sea of chaotic information and more organized. Has that been your experience? I mean, talking to so many people over the past decade has the you know conspiracy gotten a little easier to understand or is it just more overwhelming?
1: <laughs> it's probably a little bit of both, but obviously today there are a ton of podcasts, especially in the conspiracy space. But when I started it ten years ago, that wasn't so true. And really there was Coast to Coast AM and Alex Jones. Those were the big ones, and I would hear the guests they would have on. And I really thought the guests had some good material, but Alex Jones is screaming over them. Coast to Coast is taking constant breaks. Plus, they're on five nights a week. So is that host really reading the books? Not really. They're asking very introductory questions. And I just felt like these guests, they're never going to be on a mainstream platform. They need a platform where they can really just do most of the talking and be led by someone who can kind of take their really dense and detailed work and kind of be like, well, what makes the most sense to me? What is the best path through this to me? And then I hoped it was just the best path for a lot of people. And the ho- the guests are really the star of the show with me. And I feel like I've been able to help some guests who maybe have never They've got like a lot of YouTube videos out there, but they're never super methodical about their way. I've tried to help them to reach more people by laying it out in a certain like, you know, laying out a certain path through their work. And it's it's been good. I mean, it's been profitable for me. I've I can't believe how the show's taken off. Honestly, glad to be out of GameStop.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And people who are listeners of your show know you did the. Uh the corporate drivel. I myself, I was working for Amazon and during oh, this time delivering packages for Amazon, it was, you know, a beautiful opportunity to listen to podcasts. I mean, eight hours a day, I was podcast listening to podcasts, getting paid to listen to podcasts. And it was like a an education for me. I remember the first time I listened to your show was actually before I was an Amazon delivery driver. I was a bakery delivery driver, waking up at the witching hour when no one else is awake and and listening to these really awesome topics. It just opened up this whole nother world that I knew existed. I remember like the stuff they don't want you to know was probably the first conspiracy podcast I found, but that was so history channel surface level type stuff. I really appreciated the depth that you took. Like you said, giving the guests an opportunity to speak for me, Mark Booth was an author that really changed my life before I got into podcasting and listening to podcasts. And I go and find your show. And sure enough, you had interviewed him, you'd interviewed like 10, 12 other authors I had in my library. And I'm like, wow, okay, now I have a voice to go with these words. It was really reading the book again became like such another uh, experience when I'm actually able to kind of hear Joseph Farrell's voice, Dr. Joseph Farrell's voice, as I'm reading his books, it it adds another context to it. Has this been uh, the same for you, Greg? I mean, you often call yourself a humble stoner. You know, You're very humble, but how has this opportunity to speak to these authors informed your mind and helped you grow?
1: Oh, it's really been amazing because so often I would hear them interviewed and I would think, you should be asking this question, or you should take it there, or some hosts will stick to the ten questions they have and a guest would say something really interesting. And it's like that deserved a bit of a follow-up. And it would be frustrating that I couldn't like extract a little bit more. So when I did it myself, that was always the goal, is trying to get them to elaborate on certain things. And it's always just what I think is most interesting about their work. I mean, how could it be any different really? But It's definitely been helpful to get clarity on certain things. Now I have my go to people when something new happens like COVID. It was just like, oh, man, who would I go to to try to make sense of what's going on? And, you know, I've got my five or six people that tend to have their finger on the pulse of most things and they all have a different flavor, too. So you kind of you get a bunch of different angles and then you decide for yourself where the truth lies exactly. And people always, well, I'd say it's like some criticize it and some appreciate it, but people write me and they're like, well, you're so wishy-washy, I can't pin down exactly what you think. And it's like, well, the show really isn't about what I think. The show is helping guests present their perspective, and then hopefully the listeners take that range of perspectives and, again, find where they lie on some things and... That's always been the goal. It frustrates some people that certain guests will contradict each other. You know, some guests about COVID were saying lab leak really early on. Some were saying this is an exosome. It isn't even a virus. Some are saying viruses aren't even real. And I like to hear different degrees of out there when it comes to certain things. And I tend to settle somewhere in the middle. But I don't have a, net, a conclusion, really. I have a range of possibilities and a percentage you know, on each one. That's how I tend to think about things because we really don't know. We know the mainstream mar- narrative is going to be false. We can rely on that pretty consistently. But I just like to, to have guests give their perspective, and it has definitely helped me formulate opinions because I'm able to question these people directly, and I think I've got a pretty high caliber team of people that I can depend on for most new things that might happen.
0: Most definitely. I I definitely would agree. The The regulars on your show are certainly people that I look for on other shows as well. And uh, yeah, I think that to that point, you know, podcasting offers such a authentic dialogue that people might not be used to that. With television, they they tell people uh, what to think. Really, they they curtail the content based on what they expect people to be interested in. And it gets even more insidious when we talk about the news because there's agendas at hand. But you, you give the, the listener the dignity of making their own choice. And, and you don't pretend like you have to decide what is uh, appropriate for someone to hear or listen to. I think that's the freedom that we need in, in media and in content, you know, and yeah, it's, it's interesting to get that mixed, uh, mixed review. I did an episode on Tinfoil Hat about Alistair Crowley hoping to like shed light in some of those dark areas and then, and then I get people messaging me saying, "Oh, you you're representing Crowley. You're you're talking about him, you know, you're you're Crowley's a representative." And it's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that wasn't the goal." And I know you've had similar experiences where the intention that you set, you know, doesn't come across, but at the end of the day, the response seems overwhelmingly positive right you're doing very well as you mentioned
1: yeah i would say it's definitely positive and this is something i've learned just the other day which makes me feel better because a lot of times i do feel isolated in my opinions i did when i started the show and only because conspiracy is front and center now i also feel isolated today with friends and family and and people being afraid to see each other. And, you know, a group of guys can talk a strong game about, dude, we're ride or die. You know, I'm I'm your best friend. You know, I got your back no matter what until a virus comes out. And then it's like, no, I can't see you. What are you talking about? So I don't know. It, it, it became very real this year, but something I just learned is there's a website called Listen Notes. It's a big podcast archive. And someone showed me that when you look at the higher side chats in that archive, they rank all podcasts and they they basically give you a global rank. And THC is in the top 0.5 percent of podcasts. Well, so that's not really to toot my own horn. It's really just to say I can't believe as as wild as the show is, as out there as it can be, and as extreme as some of these opinions are, that we are in the top It's just, it's nuts. And then I start to think, well, are these opinions really that fringe? In my head, they are. In my friend group, they are. But that's mainstream. That's half of a percent. I mean, that's pretty mainstream for podcasting. So I guess that just gives me a little bit of, of hope that maybe I'm not as isolated as I think and that these opinions are not as fringe as they might seem. And it is probably difficult for some people in this audience to see just the crazy range of diversity. Like, I don't know a lot of shows. Like, if I just looked at my last three shows, Bruce Fenton, Hybrid Humans, Entity Involvement, and Alien AI. Then Marilyn and Patrick Harper, Mystery Big Cats, Daemons, and the Other World. And then Wayne Rohde, Vaccine Injury, and the Dark Truth of the Vaccine Court System. I mean, one of those is way more serious than the others. And to jump from ghost cats to vaccine injury, yeah, I'm sure it's a little weird to people sometimes, but it's just all under the umbrella of things I'm interested in that you don't hear about in any mainstream way.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is just a cornucopia of fabulous topics. I mean, like I mentioned in the beginning, that Tolek episode that you did, I mean, it probably had to be four years ago now, really just opened my mind up because I'd been hearing all of this stuff on, you know. YouTube and all these different disparate places and really nothing compares when you go into the the depth of it. Talking to all these great people, I mean, from Michael Wan to Chris Knowles, the synchro mysticism topic is something that I really feel like has its place in podcasting, because when you listen to a podcast, it is sort of a synchronistic feeling. Like when you find it, it's usually pretty personal. At least it was for me. And then, you know, certain episodes that you'll listen to tended, at least from my perspective, to line up to certain things going on in my life. And I've heard similar things with people who call into the Grimerica show. But I wonder, as a host, do you experience that same sense of synchronicity where certain things will come up as you're speaking to somebody almost out of the blue?
1: Absolutely. A lot of times I find, and you can hear me when I host the show, guests will basically say the next thing I was going to try to get into right before I was going to try to get into it. So it's almost like I just reinforce what they were saying and then we keep going that way and they're almost in front of me. And that's weird. But yeah, certain conversations really just tend to flow in a synchronistic way. Sometimes uh, I will see a certain book is out and then all of a sudden I'll get an email about you should have this guy on and then sometimes I'm about to email someone and they email me saying I'd like to get on your show and so there's a lot of synchronicity in that regard that even though there's this wide range of things I'd like to cover and I only do 5 shows a month there's a there's a kind of a demand I guess just to be on THC, only because it's so rare to be able to find a big stage for some of this material. And sometimes it just comes to me, and that's a beautiful thing. But I agree with you about synchromysticism. It's one of the most interesting topics out there, because you really start to wonder how many things that happen, how many things that enter our culture, things that presidents say, things that politicians do, how much of it is organic? And when you find these Really wise people who are able to take their occult knowledge and apply it to events and culture, and you see that wow, it doesn't seem like anything's organic. It seems like somebody is pulling the strings on culture and they're corralling it into these very specific ancient, like cycles, I guess you could say. And it does become a thing is it natural? Is it directed? You know, I've used the phrase a lot that these things seem too precise for human hands. So then we start to talk about, well, is there some entity on a higher level that is pulling strings and organizing culture like Legos? It almost seems that way. And it sounds crazy to talk about broadly, but when you hear one of these breakdowns from someone like Michael Wan or Chris Knowles, you're just like, what the hell is going on? How could it be so coincidental? It, it just defies logic.
0: Yeah. And I wonder, you know, to that point, how much of your getting into this was artificial because, or organic, what does that really mean? How much of uh, our lives are orchestrated in this sort of higher dimensional, this dimension interplay, this threshold between the two is something that we're all clearly very interested in. But I think how this force has shaped your life and everyone who's listened to your show. And not to put all the onus on you, Greg, you know, you've accomplished a really amazing thing. And I think other shows have done uh the same thing with this force, this synchro mystic force that kind of brings people to a higher awareness. I know with the joint session show, you get people calling in telling you how much your shows changed their life for the better frequently, right? So that on a karmic level, do you wonder if that's maybe ad positive that you were meant to bring to the world?
1: I would say so. And the more I've had my astrology looked at, the more it feels like it's faded to some degree. I mean, I've had weird little experiences that, in retrospect, seem very important for what I do. I've talked about a lot of them. Like, I saw a weird cryptid just very briefly when I was about six or seven, which just, I couldn't identify what it was, but it told me enough to be like, there is something to these sightings people have, because you've had one. I had a psychedelic breakthrough right at the right time to shake me from the grip of atheism and be like, no, there is something much bigger that you can't see behind this veil. So when these guests are talking about it, maybe don't be so dismissive of it because now you've been presented with it. And it's always so brief as to just be like a confirmation, but it's never like this super grand confirmation. It's it's very minor, but... I definitely think there are aspects of my life that put me here and the astrology is really key. Like this is something I keep on my phone as a background whenever I get into a bad mood. But my North Node is in the 10th house and it says the North Node in the 10th house indicates a karmic duty to become a role model for groups of people. Such a person must experience public leadership and also responsibility for others. He must be a pioneer that will inspire so that others will follow, a stereotype for others to copy, a person who through wisdom, experience, and fairness will become the head of his own pyramid. So that's pretty specific. I mean, how many people really do have an audience? And it's got to be like a very, very small fraction. So that's just one aspect of the astrology. Other things are, you know, I, I've had my astrology read on the show and... Planets that rule over communication are prominent in my chart. Planets that rule over transaction are big in my chart. So it's almost like when it's interpreted, it's like, well, you're going to do something in the realm of communication that involves a lot of transactions. Huh? Would that be a couple thousand people paying me five, eight dollars a month? That sounds exactly what it is. And so How many people could look at that astrology chart and find some way to fudge it to make it work? It sounds pretty damn specific. But another thing I loved about my story is before I had the podcast, I would have all these kind of role models in the world of entertainment or comedy or broadcasting. And I would always be like, that's what I want to do. But I have no resources that I didn't I didn't go to broadcasting school. I didn't have a dad who was a famous director. I had no foot in the door. And it would be really frustrating because I could always look at any role model I had and they would say, oh, you can do it. Anybody can achieve their dreams. And it just didn't feel accurate because it was always like, well, easy for you to say you had factor X, Y or Z involved and even It was a kind of a wake up call to learn that people like Conan O'Brien or Seth Rogen, a lot of people that are presented as goofballs, these aren't goofballs. Even though they have the persona of being so goofy, you're like, oh, well, Seth Rogen, he was a college dropout, too. No, no, actually not. And it's just kind of weird in that regard, but in my story, it's very public that I was working at GameStop doing the show on the side, and then when it when it popped, it was very easy to follow that story and be like, wow, here is a guy who did drop out of college, who did c- come from East Jesus, Missouri, where no one's ever succeeded from, and, and he just really grinded it out and made it, and so what I think is inspiring about my story is that i really did come from basically nowhere with no resources college dropout working as a gamestop store manager stuck in retail and it's really hard for anyone to say well he had this resource i don't have and that's what i hope people take away from my story is you really can do it if you dive in and dedicate yourself to something obviously everyone doesn't need a conspiracy podcast but take what you love make it your dedication and throw that hail mary pass and maybe you will be able to climb out of the corporate rat race because really what else do we got that's what everybody should be trying to do align yourself align your income with the good and you know people can rag on me for this guest or that or say oh he's propaganda or he's wrong on this. Look, I hope that you can be as critical of your own position and your own alignment of your income with the good, because a lot of us are suckling at a corporate teat that's doing a lot of damage to this world. And so, you know, when I get criticism like that, it's just like, I know I'm doing better than I was selling addicting video games to teenagers. I'm more comfortable with what I do now than then. So I hope you can say the same before you talk shit on me that's kind of my attitude in that regard but that's what i think is good about the story it's just that it is an every story
0: amen and bravo yeah and i think owning it the way you do adds to the energy because you are like you kind of alluded to in the beginning you're, you've created a sort of archetype that people like myself you know i don't expect you to know this but you know sam tripoli and i started working together just by chance i i went to one of his comedy shows in New York City. I gave him a copy of the Kybalion that I'd owned for like seven years. There's little notes in it and all this stuff. And I bought this Faraday fabric that I got from learning from Matt Landman and his interview on your show. And I, I put the book inside of the Faraday fabric. And I said, Sam, you know, you got to use this stuff. Put your phone in here. It's basically dead to the world inside of this bag. And he was like, okay, dude, cool, man, whatever. And then uh, a couple months later, one thing led to another. And now I'm booking his show. And that really helped me create this podcast. And my family thinks I'm crazy is kind of like me owning it. It's it's all right to, to get into all this stuff. And I've always kind of felt <clears throat> like, oh shit, what am I going to do? You know, all my interests were in these books that seemed so sh- strange to everybody in my immediate environment. It wasn't until I got into this sphere that you've helped provide online that I realized, like, oh wow, there's a lot of other people who are interested in this stuff and way more knowledgeable than me. So that began this beautiful learning process. And I think podcasting as well the audio format it's a more original way to learn something you know when we study indigenous cultures we study stories and stories are remembered through voice and and dialogue and that's how this information is being shared on podcasting i think it really is something to uh take note of and considering what we're leading into this aquarian age what are your thoughts in that regard like you you've clearly, like you said, participated in this in this thing in a completely new way, creating uh, a ripple effect that's changed a lot of people's lives. What do you think's next? Because I, I think the the future is brighter than most people would think, especially considering the past the past two years we've we've undergone. Hmm.
2: Hmm.
1: Well, I do think that's a great point. We're bringing back the oral tradition. Going. Into the Aquarian Age, I think what has been most interesting to me is the astrologers who say we're moving from this giant arc of an Earth sign to an Aquarian sign. An Aquarian is uh, an air sign. So they talk about control. They're on my show, so of course that's kind of where I tend to take things. But we're going from a, a massive arc of, I think it's 100 or 200 years, where the control is earth-based. It's about borders and about invasions in Iraq. And it's about the landscape. And now we're entering into an age where the control will be air-based, which is drones, which is surveillance, data, internet-based stuff. But it's not just control. Also, I think podcasting would be a way to resist all that in an Aquarian age. It is Aquarian. It's very over the airwaves. So that template applies to many different things but i actually think it calms me down when i start to get a little anxiety about the last couple of years and where it seems to be going because it just seems like it's in the stars you can't stop it we will live through it it's just the way it is at this point in the timeline and that's helpful to me because i guess it makes me feel as if there's something bigger out there and maybe we're in a rough chapter of the story, but it is a long story and it's definitely not the end of things. And so astrology kind of helps me a little bit in, in seeing like longer arcs of time and seeing how some things are just kind of unavoidable and how things just manifest based on the conditions of the space weather. And so, yeah, I think it's going to be a definitely a difficult time. I see the comedy store in LA. I was just starting to look at their calendar and see who they got coming up. And then they just announced, we're back to masks and our shows are for the vaccinated only. It's like, wow, okay, well, I'm glad I went to the comedy store, the legendary comedy store as much as I did while I could, because I guess I can't go back, but these are our times and I'm prepared to navigate them and keep my own sovereignty as much as I can, Uh, but I'm also not going to sit inside all day.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I feel the same way about the farmers market I used to work at. It's like, hey, here was this place that taught me so much about healthy living and organic food, and then everything went down and and now they're all masked up and afraid. And I'm like, Who are you people? Like this yeah. is not this is not the group of people I was amongst in twenty nineteen. And it it's really changed a lot of approaches that Tara and I have taken to our daily lives, where we get our food and who we get our food from and, and things like that. But considering that you and I were interested in solutions, right? I mean, a lot of the guests that you've had on, Dr. Dana Cohen, I remember being one, you know, talking about quench and, and this fourth state of water taking that step to, to just the foundation, right? We're 70 something percent water. We should have that squared away at the very least, right? That made such a, a impact on my life when I really considered, okay, where's my water coming from and how am I hydrating myself throughout the day, right? So other than that, I mean, what other areas are you looking into to be more solution I mean, Jim Gale was just on your show, Food Forest Abundance, getting out in the in the forest and, and getting your food yourself. I mean, what other solutions do you have in mind, Greg?
1: <laughs> well, that is the funny thing and maybe a silver lining for our times because I would say personally, I knew I was eating too much junk food and I knew I was like, buying things from Amazon a little too much and just going with the convenience of everything. And COVID and everything that came with it really did light a fire under me to be like, okay, you've got to shore up your diet. You've got to shore up your food supply even. And these things are important. I would say that was... Jim Gale is one I was going to mention. I mean, Jim Gale, his whole thing, his company is Food Forest Abundance, and he wants to convert the lawns of America to food forests. It's a noble goal. I think he said there were 40 million acres of grass, of lawn in America, and if we could just convert a third of that to usable food, that goes so, there, so far. There's a, a cascading effect, a domino effect to doing that because you shore up your own food supply, you hurt the pocketbook of Big Ag, who is doing monocrop, nutrient deficient agriculture, full of glyphosate and all that stuff, and you hurt the pocketbook of Big Pharma, because why are we all sick? Well, we're navigating right above the threshold of sick most of the time, because our diets are such shit. So, when COVID happened, there's this reaction of like, okay, it's not playtime anymore. I really have to take control of this. And helping other people do that is kind of what I'm about. I didn't think when I started the show, I would be interviewing food forest advocates and ranchers, but that was another one I did. Doug Lindemood runs Sunrise Ranch. He he uses sustainable agriculture and grass-fed high-quality animals is what he sells. And I convinced some friends of mine to go in on uh, a cow with me and six way we took six people and we split a whole cow or really a half of a cow because it is so much meat. And then based on what Doug said, he's he he recommended we do a draft system. So we drew cards and we just had a good day in the middle of COVID very early on when people were freaked out. I got a bunch of buddies together and we did this draft and we just each shows meat and rounds and it was really fun and it was good medicine for the people who are afraid to come out because what will they come out for high quality meat that they feel is necessary for their lives so those are the types of solutions that i'm trying to put out there which is just let's get off the corporate seat. it is time and if they want to put this agenda out to us that's fine But we're going to react finally and we're going to do things the right way the way they should be done because we've recognized the vulnerability of our supply chains. And the lockdowns, they really did only affect small mom and pop businesses. You could still go to Target. You could still go to Walmart. You could still go to any fast food place with a drive through that's kind of messed up. It, it really did bother me that it, it was like, if you go to the Bilderberg meetings, if you're a CEO who's in the Bilderberg meetings, your business gets to stay open, basically. But everyone else closes and they had to navigate this crazy time. But it just made me realize how fragile everything is. And I started buying my meat from Doug. I've never been happier. And It's great quality stuff. I've been cooking a lot more, something I wouldn't have done previously, just being lazy. And it really made me think about how many Doug moods are there in your area? How many ranchers who do sustainable agriculture and sell grass fed hormone free meat are there? People who sell you organ meat, too, which I've learned is very important. There's nutrients in certain organs you don't get anywhere else. We throw all that stuff away in the corporate system but there's probably five or less around you who do this kind of stuff. Now that's better than zero. You do have options, but if you don't take your money out of the pocket of big ag and put it in the pocket of a rancher locally, when that guy goes away, he's just gone. And then all you have is Monsanto and factory farmed Tyson chicken and all this bullshit that is not good for us. So, the fire was lit to say, okay, and you got to support these people because the big machine is always trying to make their lives harder. And without the financial fuel, they will go away and then you'll have no options. So I try to present things to people in that way and encourage them to get with your local rancher, learn where your food comes, get it local and make sure your money stays local. Let's starve McDonald's and Walmart and Target, not the mom and pops in our neighborhoods and communities that make them unique. So solution wise, I'm pretty much focused on supply chain and getting better food and water into our bodies so that we have better immune systems and can actually resist a lot of this agenda. Because the other thing about conspiracy is when I started, I felt like there were a lot of people interested in conspiracy, but the archetype is that they can't get their lives together economically, can't get their lives together in so many ways, and they're on the edge of a mental collapse. And I thought, it doesn't have to be that way. I want to show that being a conspiracy enthusiast, I like to say that instead, than theorist, is is actually serving your life in a positive way, in a better way. I want to be an archetype that says, I'm better off for knowing about conspiracy, not worse off. Everybody knows Jim Carrey's The Number 23, that movie. That's the archetype of a person going down the synchromistic conspiracy rabbit hole and losing their mind. That's to scare you away from the rabbit hole. I don't like that. I think our map should be more complete and more accurate by knowing the truth. So... And that's the long and short of it. No, I
0: yeah, I agree. I'm kind of having a synchronistic moment here because Tara and I had been talking about that movie 23 just a couple of days ago. Kind of like, what is, what is that movie about again? And here we are getting a reminder that maybe we need to go back and watch it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a mindset. And I love that the conspiracy enthusiast. I'm sure I've heard you say that before, but I have a a t-shirt from Charlie Robinson, the uh, conspiracy analyst, and that usually turns some heads. I feel like people aren't very uh, comfortable seeing that, but it's uh, it's, yeah, it's definitely something that people need to own because We're living in a world where the controllers, however, you choose to label them are banking on us being in a state of illusion, right? So to be a conspiracy enthusiast is just to see the world for what it is and have a skeptical mind and question things because there is this other element once you get into the conspiracy mindset of this kind of co-opt, right? This psyop, this thing where certain cul-de-sacs on the road to truth are created where people can get you know, stuck in a dead end when they, they were set out towards the right place. And I think sometimes this is a part of the orchestration as well. I mean, flat earth to me, people who've listened to this show, we don't talk about it much. We'll talk about it sometimes, but it's just one of those things where it's like, it's not my interest. I don't know where the, the PSYOP is, but I think there's a lot of these conspiracies that could be sort of, uh, orchestrated. I mean, would you agree with that, Greg?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And Flat Earth was a weird one because it hit like wildfire. And I thought, well, what is it about this idea that I think is so obviously dumb that is capturing so many minds? Because I don't tend to think that people who are into alternative stuff are dumb. So there must be some kind of good argument being made here that's convincing. And I also kind of drift back and forth in a couple different things of what my role really is. Sometimes I feel like, well, I cover what's in the conspiracy culture. So if this is a huge thing in the conspiracy culture and I have access to the two or three biggest names promoting it, I should interview them and I should give them a fair shake and see what they're about. And it actually became a problem for me because I interviewed a couple of them and the interviews were pretty good and pretty convincing. And then a big segment of my audience then concluded the earth is flat. And it's like, well, I consider this journey to be not really about finalized conclusions, but just ideas. And so it kind of bothers me when someone hears one good interview and says, nope, that's the truth. And I'm going to stick to this and I'm never going to move from it. Just like the exosome thing. Dr. Andrew Kaufman, very convincing about that. And now every time I interview someone who mentions gain of function, the comments are, well, why would you even entertain this? We know viruses are fake. It's like, well, (laughs) because I think this person makes some really good arguments too. And it's not about settling on particular conclusions. But with Flat Earth, the, the issue to me was, I guess the kinship I felt with those people is that when there's an alternative perspective on something a mainstreamer will dismiss it in a really shitty way and it was always like if the earth is flat why don't we sail off and it's like well you don't understand what they're talking about then because they have an answer for that in their paradigm it's more like a dartboard with an ice ring around the outside wall and you can't sail off so if you're gonna say that their perspective is bullshit you should at least have an argument that is decent because that's not a decent argument because it doesn't it, it it's easily answered and within 30 seconds when you look at what they're actually trying to talk about so i felt like it was just better to give them a fair shake and say what are your best arguments eric Dubay? let me hear you out and some things are really interesting when you take the circumference of the earth why can you see certain mountains certain structures at distances you shouldn't be able to see. Well, when Neil deGrasse Tyson was asked about that, he said, well, that's because the Earth isn't a perfect sphere. It is not a marble. It is a oblate spheroid. It's more pear-shaped. And then I think, well, where are all the pear-shaped Earth photos from space? No picture of the Earth you ever showed me from space looked pear-shaped. So now what's going on? And that's that's where the whole thing is interesting to me, is... Clearly something's not right because the math, when you really get into it, it doesn't really add up. And I think the answer is just that a lot of the space images were shown are fake. That doesn't mean I think the earth is flat. I think it means maybe that they can't get a good image because they really can't get as far out into space as they say they get. That's how I kind of wrap my head around it. But when you, I just think that that is an interesting argument. Like, well, why is the Earth not shaped the way that our premier astrophysics astrophysicist who's on all these shows, the way he says it's shaped? Something is not right here. So I try to find common ground with people like that. And the thing I say to Flat Earth is, is like, look, we agree with 95% of, of everything the controllers to craft this world in which everybody has a a terribly wrong concept of the earth. I mean, I'm with you on so many things. Like, let's just take what we agree on and just like kind of ignore that one little thing about the shape of the earth that I just don't see it the way you see it.
0: Right. And I... I'm so glad you said it that way because that's how I feel and I work with people who are on that side of things and bringing it back to farms. Last summer I was working on a farm milking cows where the whole family were Christian flat earthers and we saw eye to eye on a lot of things and I learned a lot about what they believed in and, and I've drawn my own conclusions, but I'm also in the camp of like, not making a conclusion on that sort of thing. You know, and I think that's just as equal of a position to be in an open position. And uh, yeah, this, that's one where it's like, maybe there's some truth to the cosmology that they're sort of hiding from us. And there's these roadblocks in the way where the average person hears a term like flat earth, and then they dismiss anything in this realm as crazy. And I think that's a sort of scapegoat, maybe, Uh, what is it, Uh, a... Scarecrow sort of tactic, but mm-hmm. I just think or straw man maybe is what the better term is. But but either way, I think there there's so much interest in this area. I mean, you had at the beginning of the year, a gentleman Ari Asselin on your show Paradigm Threat.net, and I've had him on a couple times to talk about this timeline because I heard your interview. You did a great job getting into it, but it's such a like a new sort of area for me. I'm like, all right, I need to dive into this as much as possible. And we've done an episode on the the Saturn cosmology and how that connects to this electric universe theory. I know that's a realm you've gone into with guys like Eric Dollard and Nassim Harriman. But what are your thoughts on that paradigm? Like, Could this all, I mean, ultimately be somewhat of a holographic, organic simulation?
1: I'm open to it for sure. And the Electric Universe model is the one that I probably gravitate to the most. Because when you look at the old scientists, guys like Tesla, even Wilhelm Reich, they were always talking about this energy that is ubiquitous and everywhere, that the air is like a medium the same way water is. We just don't see it that way because that's kind of like you've heard that thing about Well, explain water to a fish like a fish, just this is my environment. This is my air. This is just what it is. But guys like Tesla were like, actually, this is a a fabric that has energy in it and electrical energy, and it can be harnessed for things. It doesn't have to be metered by General Electric through these wires to all of our houses. It's actually a lot more abundant than that. And the Electric Universe acknowledges that electricity they call it electricity, you could call it ether, I think it's kind of the same thing, that it is this fabric that connects all things, and out in space, it's not a vacuum, it is also this fabric of ether, and so when we see a shooting star, that's an electrical current going through the fabric, and the history of the cosmos and the solar system is obviously quite different in this paradigm, Saturn used to be our original sun until it electrically discharged and that electricity went to a different body. It's a little complicated, but it makes sense to me that when you scale up and look at planets as like electrons and atoms, it just seems to make sense. And so I really am of the paradigms in which electricity and ether and energy is everywhere. Everything's connected. Everything's fractal. I think it makes the most sense. And our history could definitely be radically different. It's one of the things I think we're lied to about the most. There's people right. talking about the Tatarian kingdom and things like that. I think that our history is radically different. I think around 2,000 years ago, certain people got control of the major pockets of power in the planet and they backcasted a narrative largely through the Vatican. When you start looking at a lot of the old history, it comes from a few people, very few books. Who knows if those books are accurate, but we base everything on them. I recently interviewed someone who said, well, I'm a World War II buff, and they started giving all these World War II facts, and sure, you are an expert on the World War II narrative that comes through the mainstream books on World War II. I'll give you that. But what is the truth about anything, really? Because it's always studied through these particular books. And the further you go back, World War II, there's people who are still around. But the further you go back, you're going to take the word of one particular Greek historian as the end all be all of everything that's ever happened. And he's hundred percent accurate. What if he was hired by someone who wanted to hide certain things from history? And now every historian who's ever lived with a PhD in history is studying his material and just assuming it's the absolute truth. It just, there's so many flaws in that. And the fact that people don't look at it that way is crazy to me. Like so many things could have happened. And when his power not tried to, control thought and control the way people look at history i mean isn't it a little weird that the british royal family is german no one talks about that but what happened there there's all kinds of little things like that and it seems like there was a capture at one point and the vatican wh- who was a real stronghold for all information they have these crazy archives they have this crazy telescope why do they care about these things so much? Why is the Vatican archive locked up more so than the CIA vault? It's weird. I think there's secrets there. There's secrets in our history. Was it that Saturn was our original sun? I don't know. I think a lot of it is catastrophism. Randall Carlson has made me feel as if the, the real story is that cycles of catastrophe happen on the earth every so often. But for the people to know that... It would mean they would live their lives differently. And the controllers would rather us just keep suckling at that corporate teat. Don't worry about it. Go to work. Watch TV at night. You're not going to stop anything. Like, everything is stable. They want everything to feel stable so you don't have to think about your life and how you're going to change it or, or navigate differently. So I think when you look at some of the things the CIA has held back and redacted, some of them are books of prophecy about catastrophe. And if the elite know that catastrophic cycles happen, they can prepare for one, they can let 70% of the population get wiped out, they can protect themselves in their bunkers, and they can be the first ones to reemerge, establish a Vatican, establish a kingship, and then tell people that this is just the progress of history and nothing that happened before Is real. Like, now they can lie about so much if they're anticipating disaster and then they're the first ones to jumpstart civilization after that. And I think about 2,000 years, something like that happened. I think a lot of people are talking about the younger Dryas 12,000 years ago. I think it happened there too. It's probably a lot of cycles of catastrophe and restarting civilization. But unfortunately, the people who have that information are the predator class. And when they reset the cycle, they just create their own history. They basically erase the history and say, well, we just evolved from monkeys and this was the process and we're here now. Huh? All right. All right, guys.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's some of what Ari talks about and a lot more something that you brought up the British empire, obviously a big player in this whole realm as all empires are. Someone I was talking to on the phone mentioned they were saying it's so strange that they do tea at 4 p.m. Like that that seems like something that you would do if like the sun wasn't out. Why would you be tired and need caffeine at tea? But like those are the tiny little details that guys like, again, Chris Knowles, Michael Wan and many other people who apply this kind of sync sink- mystic analyst analysis to these topics you find these little details that add up to a larger picture and to bring Ari back this timeline that he's creating has really kind of informed a lot of what I've been thinking about recently and then with all these new Tartaria sort of theories I mean you're a veteran in the game Greg have you do you think Tartaria is like recent? Like, because you, I remember, I think it was a, a Russian person that you interviewed w- with a translator. Was that topic about Tartaria, or am I misremembering that just because they're
2: Russian?
1: And no, well, Sylvia, I have I've interviewed a lot from the New Earth YouTube channel. She does touch on it for sure, but she basically just goes over all this crazy stuff. Like, she'll show images of white samurais. And it's like, well, the samurai tradition we thought was just Japanese, but it's just stuff that is strange. Intermixing that happened at time depths we're told shouldn't happen. She does she does go into the architecture of certain buildings and how it seems like they were harnessing energy at a certain time depth like Tesla, similar to the way he would talk. Why are all these cathedrals and giant places why do they have these these big steeples and a big metal rod on top. Is it really just about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Or was there something energetic going on there? It's interesting. Tartaria, they apparently had, there's some images that show what looks like the old world's fair that we used to have. And they had something like that going on and they would fight with these light swords, similar to, they look like, they look like lightsabers kind of, but they're energy swords. And it's like, what is that? I, it's, it's not in our history book. So I think the controllers who obviously want to meter all our energy and make us live in a world of scarcity, if there was a civilization that was full on Tesla tech and like promoting all that kind of stuff, they would want to destroy it and then they would want to remove it from history. So I can see the incentive there. Did it actually happen? I don't know, but I could see the incentive. And that to me is often like what I think is the most validating for certain things.
0: Right, and from your perspective, you know, analyzing this stuff for as long as you have been, I mean, Tartaria seems relatively new in this realm. Why do you think that is? Is it because it's it's existed in other languages in other countries for the past so many years? Anatoly Fomenko is a big figure in in the research, but. What, what is your, your guess on, on why Tartarus seemed to have just come out of nowhere in the past two years?
1: Probably just our ability to research now. It's better than it ever was. And the internet helps people dig and find certain things. That's probably my best guess as to why it's recently emerged. I don't know that people were questioning the timeline of history to the degree they are now a few years ago. Anatoly Flamenco, as you mentioned, he did kind of start the whole thing of looking at the prospect that huge chapters of history were just inserted, the Dark Ages. Why isn't there much information on it? Because they probably made it up in the Vatican basement. <laughs> There's weird things like that. And a lot of it probably centered around establishing the network of royal families throughout Europe. Once they were established, they probably needed to make it look like they were there for a long time. So they made up a few decades and said, oh, no, this family has ruled here for generations. And the people who knew that was a lie just got killed or slowly died off. And I think that's the motivation to lie about history. And obviously, if a civilization is going to be open about things that they want closed up, then they just erase them entirely. Right. Now, bringing it
0: back to your story and your origins, I mean, you're born in the Mississippi River Valley, right? I mean, there's so much history there uh, amongst the indigenous tribes and the uh, mound builders that existed there. Was that ever a part of your life? Did you visit those sites? And do you plan on uh, engaging with that type of Earth magic moving forward because I think if we were to you know touch on a theme here, I think magic is always a theme on my podcast. Am I off with that assumption that the magic is still sort of on the precipice for you? Because I mean, to bring it back to my original notion here, it's like you're from a place that's extremely magical in the in the sense of landscape.
1: Hmm. Well, it is funny because back then. I was so preoccupied with getting out of the Midwest, just not appreciating that aspect at all. I would think about Gobekli Tepe or the Great Pyramids, and it always felt like the magic is out there, and I'm stuck here. And that's really sad, because I did grow up outside of St. Louis, near Cahokia Mounds. Cahokia Mounds is one of the most esoteric, basically buried cities that we have. They say that at one point its population was bigger than Paris and it's just it was this giant city of indigenous people. and I was still so young that I kind of didn't think much of the Indigenous American people until I left the area. So a little sad, I probably would have gone to Rockwall, Texas and checked out that crazy Rockwall with these weird properties. I probably would have gone to Ohio to see the Serpent Mound and appreciated that better uh, than I did at the time. But I was so focused on the fact that I didn't agree with Midwesterners politically. At that time, I adopted atheism, so I thought that the Christian aspect was stupid. I was really just feeling like there's no opportunity for what I wanted to do. In the Midwest, it's like, okay, what company are you going to work for? And I just hated yeah. that. So yeah, I, I thought, you know, I have to leave the
0: Northeast too, <laughs>
1: right? It's unfortunate to feel like you have to leave to do anything you want to do. And ultimately I just do a podcast online. I could have done it from Missouri. Probably would have been easier because my rent would have been cheaper and everything, it wouldn't have been so difficult to quit my job and take the leap. But I just didn't think of it that way. I thought I got to go to the, I got to go to the West coast to do anything at the time I was trying to grow weed another hail Mary trying to make six figures with no resources at all is like, how am I going to get to a place where I'm comfortable financially? If I'm also going to drop out of college first thought was grow weed. So that's how I ended up getting out here. But then once it fell apart, I was like, okay, maybe podcasting. I don't know. And
0: I mean, there's the magic, Greg. I mean, you're, you're clearly successful in your your field and there's magic to that I think I think that's definitely a part of it and yeah to bring it back to what you said about the Aquarian age I mean it is air the qualities of air I'm an air sign myself so I definitely feel a a kinship there and the podcasting airwave metaphor that you use really resonated with but yeah. I, I mean, Ross Ben, Michael Wan, these are guys that are looking into the landscape. That's inspired me to kind of go up the Connecticut River and, and kind of explore. We went to Porcupine Fest in Lancaster, New Hampshire, and kind of just everything that we heard on your interview with Michael Sandler about the signs, symbols, and synchronicities just added so much to our journey, Tara and I. So I got to thank you. I mean, that episode, I think, Think it came out the day we left, and it was just so it like in the same vein as what we were discussing before, so synchronistic, how it it informed our journey. And and now here we are uh with a new segment of our podcast called The Synchromistic Exploration in the Ever Expanding Now, where we take people you know on the journey with us to show them how to use these tools to better their life. And you're an example of that. You used a totally new sort of technology. It's kind of a rehashing of radio, but in such a beautiful, free way. I know you don't like being up on the pedestal, Greg, but bravo to you, man. You really have done the magic and i think that's something i wanted to make the point because listening to your show when you talk to all these guys who've done all these spells and rituals it can kind of feel i'm sure a little like oh wow these guys are are really doing something profound but at the end of the day we're all human beings and we're all experiencing the same reality we're all experiencing that same electromagnetic energy flowing through the air just
1: like you described well, cheers to that, and I appreciate the kind words, but yes, when it comes to ceremonial magic, just to get back to kind of what you had asked, is yes, I definitely have kind of just kept that on the periphery. I haven't really engaged with it very much. I've read some grimoires, I've read some books of magic, I've followed certain people's spell casting, and, and they're uh, kind of in the more traditional sense, and... Sorry, got an animal jumping up in front of my microphone. But I, what I also learned is that magic is a lot broader topic than wearing the robes and lighting the candles and drawing out a pentagram. Michael Sandler, as you mentioned, his whole thing is automatic writing and this process he developed for getting into that headspace where you can commune with your ancestors, with any energy of really anything that is past. And it's pretty powerful and profound stuff. I guess I've started to think of magic as just a metaphysics of psychology. I mean, it's really just aspects of consciousness and ways to connect through that fabric of energy. It's not all demons and Freemasons, you know, as some people paint it. It is a little of that. Those are the people who engage with these techniques for a long time. But sigil making, something that I think can really improve your life. You don't have to connect to any demonic entity to do sigil making. It's rearranging your consciousness, your subconsciousness, in in my opinion, to manifest the timeline that you want to be on. I think part of what the elite do is convince us that we're powerless and they're definitely not going to teach you about manifestation, even if it's bullshit. They don't even want you to think it's possible because the mind is a powerful thing and what you think can be possible sometimes becomes possible. They call it the placebo effect. But what is it? It's thinking you're healed when you're physically not healed. So what is that? That happens. We all know it happens. Why can't we apply that to other areas of our life? Why can't we convince ourselves mentally that we are on the path of being the biggest podcaster on the planet and then find ourselves in the top 0.05 percent? You know, it's a weird thing, but apply that same template of placebo and physical healing to other things in your life. I really think that's the crux of magic is just getting yourself into a headspace where your subconscious and conscious mind are connected and you can pull yourself along the path you want to be on and sure, call up a demon for help if you want or just talk to your own ancestors or don't talk to anybody and just do sigil making, intention writing and journaling and those kind of things because that also keeps you on track
0: right and it and it's an aspect of culture and what is culture other than the way we term and and organize our reality right it's just the overlay between us and and the real and magic like you said it's a it's metaphysical psychology and i think that's kind of where All of these empires stand is in between us and our center of power because they can't control us unless we're in this disempowered state. So, well put, Greg, as usual. I got to ask you, wrapping up here, how do you think this story ends, or do you think there is even an end to this conspiracy story, you know,
1: this larger story that we're all participating in? Well, they say apocalypse is a great revealing. And I always liked that because, in a way, it is a breaking down of everything. Like, you think about apocalypse, you think about structures collapsing. Well, what causes an apocalypse? It's kind of the people waking up to see that the structures that are in place are manipulative, are parasitic. And so they have to go. And so what looks like the collapse of an empire... I mean, it is a collapse of an empire, but it's not the collapse of everything. You know, if we did start going to local ranchers and local farmers markets and growing our own food as the empire fell apart, in the history books, it would be written as like a giant apocalypse. But really, it would be people getting back into nature, getting closer to their food sources, having higher quality food and more security and more sustainability. So it's all about perspective. And I think that it kind of lines up with this guy, Martin Armstrong, who has these predictive models. And he's he's got like this, this big cycle he's been talking about for over a decade where he says we're entering this phase of peak. What is the term he uses? A lack of confidence in institutions. And so five years ago, I didn't know if he would be right. But today, with this giant narrative we have... I really think that when we come out the other side of this narrative, we will see that we were, most people will see we were led down a path. There was a lot of dishonesty along that path, and I'm never going to trust this system again. You know, you and I, we're already there. We already know the system can't be trusted. We don't need to have our minds melted by this, this big unraveling that will happen for a lot of people. But we will come out the other side of this, and I've had a lot of guests express that the plans they have right now agenda 2030 the world economic forum they're talking about some very scary things and these are their plans but their plans do not necessarily manifest 100 percent. and i think that's important because a lot of the people making the decisions the klaus schwabs the henry kissinger's the rockefellers the rothschilds these people are 80 90 sometimes 100 years old they're not the ones who are building the technical infrastructure for this digital control grid that they want. They're not the ones physically making the biosecurity state that they have in their wet dreams. So I think that the, te- the technology isn't quite ready for the what they really want, and it won't work. In the end, I think it will not work. And so we will go through a few difficult years of people dealing with these shots and these booster shots and things being locked down, but we will come out the other side of it and it'll end up being where people, I think, will see that we were right to ignore a lot of this stuff on the nightly news and this biosecurity state that they want to institute, they will fall short because they really don't have the necessary infrastructure. And that is my hope that when that crumbles, people wake up to a lot of things. And it's never a bad idea to shore up your food and your security and engage with nature. It's never a bad idea. And it's probably more important now than it was five years ago.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly the solution that I think I resonate with. And I think cannabis is, we were talking to Laurel Erica last week. And she mentioned cannabis as an ally. And that's a term that I remember reading about in Carlos Castaneda's Don Juan the Yaqui Way, right? And this ally, this plant spirit in your show, The Higher Side Chats. I mean, clearly cannabis has been an ally for you, Greg. So maybe bringing things into the more uh, recreational realm, what, what are your thoughts on this cannabis industry becoming more, corporate and i mean you're over there in sunny california it seems like you got the kind of the situation on lockdown because the people who set it up were kind of more in that headspace but like you're on the east coast massachusetts it's pretty much like an mit dispensary for some of these places it might as well be walmart selling you pot like What are your thoughts on cannabis as it becomes more legal? You know, I'm in Connecticut. Connecticut just legalized cannabis. New Jersey legalized it last year. What are your thoughts on the future of cannabis?
1: (laughs) Well, absolutely. Cannabis played a role in things. It was really, I think, one of the first big lies I woke up to. Because when I started drinking, I was like, oh, this is fun. Getting drunk with the boys is a good time. No one ever told me it was super demonized, you know, in the Midwest, it really wasn't a big deal. It's like, this is what you'll do when you get older. But weed was so off the table. And then when I got high for the first couple of times, I was like, actually, this is far superior to the drinking. I I like this state a lot more and it's not dangerous. And I was completely lied to about this. I went through the DARE program. They're basically putting crack and meth and weed in the same category. So that's, that's really dangerous, too, because I know people who thought if they're lying to me about weed, maybe they're lying to me about meth. And I know people who have gone down that path, and it really, really sucks. So I think honesty is so important with these things, because when you know you've been lied to, then you have to find your own truth. And sometimes it's not, <laughs> it's not great to find your own truth. The corporate industry of, of weed is really problematic to me this whole culture of more and more potency i think is a little bit of an issue i don't need gmo weed i don't need 35 percent thc i go into the dispensary all the time and they're always trying to give you the most potent stuff i'm like give me a nice little 18 percent because i like to smoke throughout the day and i want to be able to get up and do something I don't need the most potent stuff ever and there's also a giant DAB culture which I think is also a little scary. The friends I have who I think have gone the closest to losing their grip on reality are people who were daily DAB users and I think if you look at the science there is some association between psychosis and marijuana use. But I think that those associations happen at those crazy unnatural potency levels. And then you've got corporate weed where they're putting pesticides on it. Maybe that's it. We have like a association with schizophrenia, but maybe it's because you're smoking glyphosate for three years straight. I mean, we don't necessarily know because they're doing so much to that weed. So it does bother me. But with the open market, you have the choice to go to the local grower who grows outdoor organic flower at a nice little 18, 20% THC level. And, you know, it's kind of against the culture to say that I want milder marijuana, but I just want marijuana that is in its most natural state because humans, I think, have a history of consumption of this plant, a symbiotic relationship that goes back centuries, and so, don't mess with that. We don't need you to mess with it. And how convenient that these things come in tandem that, well, now you're allowed to use it now that we've covered it in all these pesticides and increased its potency to this crazy level that puts you over the edge. They've weaponized it, you could say, almost. I would, I would kind of probably frame it that way. But right. it's also my favorite thing ever. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard to judge it too harshly.
0: And, and we are kin in that sense. It's definitely in my top three for sure. I I, I guess I could say favorite. I don't know. But, uh, but I think Chris Bennett, someone who we've both interviewed, is a great chronicler of the history of cannabis. And it is curious how cannabis has this sort of relationship with the occult and esoteric. And I think that just harkens back to your previous point of this metaphysical sort of toolkit or how did you phrase it we wrote it down metaphysical psychology because cannabis it really opens up this other level me when I had my awakening to use that term is a little dangerous a little dicey now but when I had my awakening in 2012 2013 it was very much because of cannabis and a lot of this material. So yeah, I wonder how much of that fits into this sort of kismet, this destiny, this fate that we're uh, participating in, in this synchronistic way. Yeah.
1: Well, it's all connected. That's what I would say. It's just, it's all part of the story for sure.
0: Right on. Well, Greg, I have to ask, obviously people know they can go to thehiresidechats.com. They can become a plus member like me. I've been a plus member for, I think, two years now. And it's definitely, like I said, a big value in my life. I've learned a lot. So I definitely implore all my listeners to go and check that out, the Higher side Chats com, only eight dollars a month and you get access to the whole archives. And that's like, what, 12 years now, Greg, is it or am uh, I off on there?
1: Closer to 10, but it is 10 years of shows, maybe 11 at this point. But a very long archive of some of the brightest minds in the conspiracy, paranormal, cult, esoteric space, I would say. And they're pretty action packed interviews. In podcasting these days with advertising, a lot of times shows that I used to love, they kind of lose the magic and you start to see some of these hosts just filling airtime until the next commercial break because that's how they get paid. And I get paid only if my shows are good from people signing up to the show. You don't have to go buy a $30 pair of MeUndies so that I can get $2 and call that support. That's You're supporting me, Undies. You're not supporting me. So I like the direct relationship, no advertising, and I don't ask for donations because when you contribute, you get twice as much show. That's, I think, the best, purest form of podcasting when you want to talk about controversial things. And when I do interviews on other shows, I tend to make coupon codes because I have that ability now. So if anyone's listening to this and uses the coupon code CRAZY, you can get a free week of THC plus and you can get into that archive. You can see if you like it. You can download shows after the 7 for for listening to after the 7 days are over. But get in there. Play around, see what you find. I think there's a little something for everyone.
0: Right on. I love the I love the coupon code Greg. Great code. Uh-huh. Crazy. Listen to that, folks. Sign up for the Higher Side Chats and get a free week if you use the code CRAZY. And wow, right on. I have to ask, with Rockfin and Rumble and all these other places, do you plan on doing any sort of video content, any sort of live streaming content moving forward? Or are you just going to stick with the format because it is working well? Right.
1: I probably will stick with the format. I've been approached by Rockfin a couple of times, and they're always a little vague about how I'm going to make more money they tell me come on over you're gonna make more money is like, I don't understand because I make eight dollars per subscription and a subscription to all of Rockfin is nine dollars and they pay in a cryptocurrency so I'm like okay there it is you think that this token is more valuable no shade at them let them do their thing but I'm committed to this model I built patreon before patreon existed I'm doing this this is this is it so In terms of video content, also not the best fit for me because I like to edit the audio podcast pretty heavily. Take out all the ums and ahs, take out any ringing cell phones, any kind of distractions that occur throughout the, the interview. I don't ever edit out content, but just crutch words and all the bullshit of people just trying to get to their point. And that can't be done in a video show because it would be like all those jump takes where you're looking at the people and they're just constantly cutting out. But with audio, you can massage that and no one ever knows. So that's how I think I'm able to have some of the best audio interviews is it's not always that I'm just amazing at it. It's that I prepare a lot. I let the guests do most of the talking and then we have a a lengthy post production process where we take, the raw interview, and we make it as good as we can for the listener. So maybe someone who's more talented than me could do it in a quarter of the time. (laughs) You know, it takes a lot of massaging for my interviews to be as good as they can. But that's what I do, and I don't see myself changing it. I think when you get into video, you get into a problem where you can't be as nimble with the censorship crackdown because there's only a few places to put video content. And I don't think Odyssey or BitChute work all that well, to be honest, constant buffering and all that. So if you get kicked off of YouTube, what are you gonna do? With audio, it's very nimble. People can plug right into the RSS feed. As long as you have a website that's up, you're up. And you can kind of control that a lot more than you can these other platforms. If I get kicked off of Spotify, what do I care? That's just another place that's out there. And all these like corporate platforms like YouTube and Spotify, I'm there with the free show, and I'm just casting nets to try to bring people in, lead people back to my website, and more of a more connected relationship. So it doesn't hurt me for those things to be out there, and if they go away, it also doesn't really hurt me. So I think that's kind of the best way you can navigate this crazy time with a show that's going to be as radical as what I try to do.
0: Right on. Right on. And I think I'm going to use that for our Alt Media United podcast as well, what you just said there, because that is, I think people need to hear that because RSS is here to stay. Audio is here to stay. And like we touched on it originally or before, this is the oral tradition that we're reestablishing. And Greg, again, thank you so much for joining us on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I got to ask you, though, does your family think you're crazy?
1: (laughs) Luckily, my parents are very on board with what I've done. I think a lot of parents want to be supportive. So they started listening to these guests, too. And they started thinking, these are some really good points. And they've kind of come to this way. You know, I wasn't raised in it, but I've brought my parents over to this side. I mean, they were always, I would say, in the middle, open to a lot of things. But in a pre-internet world, you can't do the deep dives, even if you're open-minded. It's it's harder if it's not directly in front of you. So I think I've brought them over. And I think with the success of the show and living in California, it just looks good to the rest of the family. So my position as the black sheep, the weirdo rebel of the family, once you find a little success, you start getting Christmas cards again and people do want to see you again. So, I think that that's probably helped. And But uh yeah, my family does ultimately think I'm crazy. The the larger larger circle of it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, that's
0: something to look forward to for me. Greg, you are definitely so Awesome for joining us, man. I really appreciate you coming down to this little show from the top 0.05%, folks, the king of conspiracy, Greg Carlwood. Thank you so much for listening to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now and peace out.
2: Join us on the journey.
1: My heroes, thanks for listening. Aren't robot voices weird? You better join us on our Patreon if you want to see behind the scenes patreon.com slash mftic join today. I never say
2: the things I say. Thank you for listening to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. We truly appreciate you now go enjoy a plate of spotted dick. Get out the hash some wacky tobacky and roll it up light it up smoke it up baby.